Well, you may be sitting there thinking, didn't we see that last week? And the answer is yes, you did, if you were tuned in last week. Uh, Elvin and I talked about it, and given where we are with this new series we start today, we felt like it was a good thing for us to show that little video clip again because it really underscores and reinforces the fact that we as disciples of Jesus Christ are to be his witnesses. And that's a big statement, and I think it's a bigger statement sometimes than we want it to be. Some people are scared by that statement. Other people are uh, emboldened by that, and some people just kind of find themselves settling into what they've always done as it relates to that, whether you want to call it evangelism or witnessing or whatever it is. But uh, I, I think it's important for us as a church and more importantly as disciples of Jesus Christ that we recognize our calling to connect people with the love and the life of Jesus Christ, to build bridges, as we like to say here. I want to begin this series by asking a question that uh, may seem a little strange to you, but I hope to underscore just how pertinent it is in our time. What would it take for you to walk away from church? I I hope that your answer would be, um, I can't even imagine doing that. But if that is your answer today, then you may well be in the minority of many people. Because the answer that many people seem to be giving to the question, what would it take for me to walk away from church, is, well, not much really. Those people who are uh, experts, whether uh, they deserve that term or not, is up for discussion probably. But those who are called experts in church life are telling us that we will never see church involvement at the level we did before COVID-19 pandemic hit that from this point forward, we'll never see all of those people come back to church. Well, I don't know if that's true or not, but there's probably some truth in it at least, and it's something that ought to grab our attention and cause us to settle in and go, okay, what are we going to do with that? Uh, Also, I I have this book that I recommend. I try to recommend books for you from time to time. This is called You Lost Me, and several of us around church have read this over the last couple of years. Uh, David Kinnaman is the author of this, and um, it talks about losing an entire generation to church. And uh, even on the very first page, there's several different stories of people who grew up in the organized church, uh, whether Baptist or evangelical or mainline denominations. Uh, But those younger people have walked away from the church because they just didn't get what they thought they wanted. It's a a question that's valid, and it's one that we need to ask And we need to answer because we're called to reach into that scenario into those people's lives with the good news of Jesus Christ. So how do we do that? I think that's a a tough question to answer. How do we respond to that situation? So our series that we begin today is called Storytellers. And what I want to do is spend a few weeks here uh, exploring a little bit of the Bible story, the story of salvation, the story of creation, working its way through the fall and into the correction for sin and ultimately the consummation of the ages. We're going we're to talk about the story that is the Bible, God's story. But we do that with an idea of understanding that we must be engaging people in our world, in our community. As I like to say, God has strategically placed you into a circle of people who desperately need life. And that life is, is part of the story that you tell. And as today's message, the first in this series says, 
you need to tell personal stories. Not some canned approach. You need to tell a personal story of why Jesus Christ uh, is worthy of their attention as it relates to all of this. So I'm, I'm, I guess what I'm saying is we really kind of need a paradigm shift, or we may well need a paradigm shift. So let's clarify some terminology. A paradigm, according to dictionary, is it's a model that forms the basis of something. We tend to use that as it relates to whether it's a theory or a methodology in various areas of life. So let's use uh, a wristwatch as an example. There was a time that if you were going to follow the paradigm of the day, you would have a Swiss watch because of the way it was engineered and the timekeeping was perfect or close to perfect. Uh, that was the paradigm for the industry. But nowadays, if you have a Swiss watch, then I have one up on you because my smartwatch will allow me to scan headlines or to see what the weather is, to watch radar, or to even have a phone call off of my watch. The paradigm for watches has changed. So a paradigm shift occurs when what has been the standard all of a sudden gets pushed out for something else. That might be a strange thing for us to talk about when it comes to church, and especially to witnessing, but I hope you'll stick with me long enough to talk about and listen to what maybe Scripture has to say. Because a paradigm shift flies in the face of an old adage that says, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That's bad grammar, and I'm going to suggest to you it's a bad motto for living. Our society doesn't really even do that. Because if we followed the, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, then we would all still be walking instead of driving cars. But actually, we didn't go from just walking to driving cars. There was a paradigm shift that went from just walking to riding a horse. And then there was another paradigm shift somewhere that went from riding a horse to driving a car. And then another paradigm shift that said, well, there's even a better way to, for long distance uh, travel, and that is flying a plane. And so our paradigms tend to shift as we move forward as a society. Um, so what does that have to do with us being Christian? Here's what I'd like to take you to. In, in Mark chapter 9, we have this encounter that Jesus and his disciples have. Now, Jesus actually has been up on the Mount Transfiguration. He's been with his other disciples, three of them, uh, his inner circle, his close group of disciples. The rest of them were left down at the bottom of the hill. And so as Jesus and those three disciples come off of the Mount of Transfiguration, here's what they find. Mark 9, verse 14. And when they came, uh, up, and when they came up to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams, and he grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and he rolled about foaming at the mouth. I'm going to stop reading there because that gets us at least into this passage. Here's a scenario where Jesus 
takes charge of a situation that the paradigm of the day was not handling well. We're going to come back in just a few moments and we're going to start unpacking that and looking at some of the players in this passage. But as we do that, I want to kind of transition into what you're about to see. Our Discipleship Education Committee has been answering some questions that we've heard around the church, uh, helping you to understand something about what we're doing. And when we talk about discipleship, what's the place of that? Here's a good rule of thumb for us. Good evangelism always grows out of good discipleship. Evangelism is part of the discipling process, and by definition, it is also the entrance into the discipling process as we share the good news, tell the personal story that you and I have with someone who does not know Jesus Christ, uh, and they respond to him and accept that invitation to a relationship with him and forgiveness and all that comes with that, then they enter into a discipleship process. So I want to ask you to watch now and listen as our Discipleship Education Committee members talk to you a little bit about why that's so important for us as a church. I'll be back in a few moments. All right, we're in Mark 9 and verses 14 and following. And in that little passage that we've read already, and we'll come back and hit a few other things and then we'll continue reading, but uh, in that little passage that we've read, we've seen that there are four major players or groups of players in this little passage. First of all, there is the man and his son. I call those the hurting ones. Um, You know, realistically, those people are everywhere. We don't always see them, but they are everywhere. And they're the ones who kind of kick this whole thing off. They're really the focus of it, although the lesson Uh, is going to center somewhere else. But before we go any further than that, I just want to underscore that this man and his son, his demon-possessed son, uh, that's a family that's in turmoil. That's a situation where we find someone is really hurting, and he's smart enough to go to where he thinks there's help, which is to Jesus. So that's one major player in this. Another major player are the scribes. These are the ones who represent the old paradigm, if you will. They represent established religion in Jewish life. They're the ones who were the copyists. They, they would copy out by hand scripture from the Torah of the Hebrew Bible. And because they copied it out, they were the experts on what it had to say. And so they often are seen in scripture with the Pharisees kind of teaming up on Jesus. And, but they represent in this story that old system. And, uh, and their system is on trial, and it's losing in this particular instance, as we'll see in just a few moments. But then you also have Jesus' nine disciples, the ones who were not up on the Mount of Transfiguration with him. They were left down at the bottom of the hill, and they represent the, uh, the, the new experts, if you will. They were part of Jesus' inner circle. I mean, not his inner circle, but his, his middle circle of disciples. There were those inner circle and the middle circle, and then there was the bigger group that followed. But these were the ones that Jesus had handpicked. And so they represent the new way, the Jesus way. And so they're part of this. And then you have Jesus, who's part of this, um, the main part of this, we would say. And uh, all four of those have something to teach us. Matter of fact, I'm going to tell you now something that we'll probably say at the end of this sermon today, and that is that you have to find yourself in one of these four groups. You are in there somewhere, and maybe in more than one of those groups, depending on what's going on in your life today. So those are the four groups that we have. We come back to the scribes for just a moment. I've already given you a little bit of an insight in who they were, experts in the law. And they were engaging the disciples and the crowd. 
That comes out of verse 14. There's, there's a word that's used there in the original language can mean in either of two things. Either they were discussing something or as the ESV that I use translates, they were arguing with the disciples. Uh, and what they were arguing was how to go about helping this individual who's hurting. Because in the ancient Near East, not only in Judaism, but also in other uh, religions, uh, false religions, we would say, uh, they had these discussions about what was the proper way to deal with evil spirits. And so as this person comes, they know that the law, at least their interpretation of the law, said you do it this way. Well, the disciples, those who represent the new way, were not doing it that way. And so there's this argument that comes forward. Um, here, here's a good rule of thumb for us. Look, at the, look into the text and say, okay, so what's working and what's not working? And in this case, that old paradigm, their interpretations were not working. In other words, they were powerless in the situation. But they're certainly willing to continue arguing about what is the right way to do it. Their paradigm is on trial and it's losing. That pushes me to the disciples who were still there, those who represent the new way, the Jesus way. And that's a new paradigm, we might say. And they're not working. Now, that's, that's a shocking thing. They're, they're powerless in this also. But it's shocking to me because this is not the first time these guys have come up against evil spirits. Let me take you backwards a couple of chapters and give you three different readings here that help us understand why this should shock us, that these disciples are not uh, helping this particular person out. They're powerless in this situation. Mark chapter 3 especially in verse 15, but I'm going to back up reading from verse 13. It says this, And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. And here's the verse, verse 15, And have authority to cast out demons. This is not a new situation for these guys, but they're powerless. Something's up with that. We go from Mark 3.15 to Mark chapter 6 and verse 7. And it says there, And he called the twelve, and he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Again, this is now the second time that we find Jesus giving them authority, power, if you will, in this very situation that they are now powerless and if that's not enough for you, then we can go to chapter 6 and verse 13, where we get the report. It says, um, And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. These guys are not the scribes. They're not arguing from an ancient Near Eastern kind of uh, guidelines on how to deal with evil spirits. These guys are followers of Jesus Christ. More than that, they are part of that inner group that now represent the authority that Jesus has. They are his disciples, and he has specifically empowered them to deal with situations exactly like this, and yet it's not working. So they're on trial, and their paradigm is on trial, and it's a pretty serious kind of situation. I think it's important that we pause and get that. 
that we recognize that you can represent the truth and not do it in a way that honors God. Put yourself in where we are in this passage right now, but just put yourself in the shoes of that father or of that boy. He's gone to the only place he knows where there might be hope, and it's not working. The old religious system is failing him. The new people seem to be failing him. Let me just say it this way. We should never underestimate the ability of organized religion to miss the point. Organized religion has a very real history of missing the point when it comes to dealing with hurting people. The scribes are arguing about the right way to do it. The disciples are trying to figure out why their way isn't working. But the issue is the boy. And the issue is the father. And what do you do with that scenario and with them? Sometimes we in church work, uh, we miss the point. And we get so focused on dealing with the machinery uh, of how we do things and the machinery of the organization that we miss the point of hurting people. One of the reasons that so many people are walking away from the church or people who are out there in society are not willing to come to the church is because they have this innate awareness of the machinery gets the focus, not the hurting people. That's a, that's a challenging statement, I think. Dallas Willard, uh, in his book called Renovation of the Heart, talks about this dangerous trend in churches. Uh, it's not like a new trend. It's just been a trend almost from day one with churches, and that is that we emphasize the vessel to the exclusion of the treasure that the vessel carries. So many times in church work, we do the church work and ignore the work of the church because the work of the church is to connect people with the love and the life of Jesus Christ. Those are hurting people. And we're in a, in a society now that's running away from that. They don't, they don't, they're, they're, they're fed up with church and they don't like what we have to say or what we say we have to say. Say we have to offer. Say we're about, and they just say, no, thanks, I don't need that. And yet we're still called to reach them. How do we do that? And so if or when uh, maintaining the system becomes our focus, then it's time for a paradigm shift. In the last segment, we're going to look at what that shift is according to the way Jesus dealt with this. We'll be right back. So contrasting this old system, that's the scribes, and these new antagonists to the old system, and that's the disciples, comes Jesus. It's always a great thing when Jesus shows up on the scene where things are not working. And that's exactly what happens here. And look with me at verse 19, how Jesus enters into this discussion. In verse 19, he says, And he answered to them, O faithless generation, How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. I love that. Jesus just calls them out. And he kind of communicates 
I'm about to lose my patience with y'all. Now, I don't think he was just talking to the scribes, although clearly that needed to be said. But I think he's saying that with his disciples too. He's given them the authority, two different statements we've read today. And then he's pushed them out and they've done this. And yet they're still locked into something that doesn't free them up. They're both scribes and disciples are powerless in this situation. Jesus is not powerless. And so he steps in and notice what he does, how he comes into this with power, beginning in verse 20. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and he rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Now there's power for you. Notice that Jesus steps into the situation. He's not bound by the old system. He's not even bound by the new system. He steps in with the authority that is inherent in him as the Son of God. And he takes charge of the situation. He takes charge of that evil spirit. And he says in no uncertain terms, this is finished. And it's finished. Imagine for a moment if you're one of those disciples. Not one of the three that had been up on the mountain transfiguration with him, but one of the ones down on the ground, the ones who were part of this discussion with the religious leaders. I, I don't know about you, but I, I think for me, I would, have, I, I would have been, so how did he do that and we couldn't do that? Well, it's exactly what they're thinking because we find in verse 28 at the opportune moment, the first opportune moment after that, in other words, they don't want to have this discussion of why it didn't work in front of all these people, clearly. And so verse 28 says, And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? <laughs> uh, I love that. I love Jesus' response even more. Because Jesus' response speaks to the paradigm shift for them, but also for us. And as we face a society and a community around us that is clearly hurting, you cannot have the kind of turmoil that our American society has these days without there being a pain that's underneath that. Probably a lot of different pains that are underneath that. And Jesus is the fix for those. And he brings power to that situation. And so his answer to those disciples, this new paradigm, not just for casting out unclean spirits, but also for dealing with hurting people. Listen to what he says. Uh, verse 29, and Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Another passage may say prayer and fasting. Now this is where I, I want to pause I want to make sure that we don't try to make something out of this that Jesus was not making. In other words, 
we have our own paradigms. We have our own little systems, our own little traditions, our own little uh, ways of doing things. And if we're not careful, we will superimpose those things onto this text and we will water it down and take the power out of it if we do that. Jesus says this kind only comes out by prayer. I challenge you to look back through this passage and find the place where Jesus prayed before he did it. Or if you take the reading that says prayer and fasting, uh, I challenge you to look into this passage and find the place where Jesus practiced both of those before he said to this demon come out of that. It's not there. And here, here's what I mean by that, why I'm pushing that, because we have our own little prayer systems. And if we're not careful, we don't need, uh, let me rephrase that. If we're not careful, we'll settle into an idea that essentially locks God out of that and say, well, we'll we just, we're going to pray and that'll take care of it because we know there's power in prayer. Well, I want to challenge that statement. Uh, and before you call me a heretic, listen to the whole thing, okay? We say prayer changes things. Well, some smart preacher somewhere challenged that and came up with, well, prayer changes people and people change things. Well, that's true, true enough. I'm not going to say that it's totally wrong, but I will tell you that uh, if, if we push those two statements too far, we don't need God. Because if we just do the prayer, then that itself will change everything. And so it really becomes a humanistic kind of prideful way of saying, well, if I just do the prayer stuff, then all that stuff will change. But prayer is not designed for changing situations. That's God's job. Prayer is designed for changing us. That's God's job. And so prayer, as I have said many times, and I, I, can, I believe we can support this all through Scripture, prayer is a positioning tool for followers of Jesus Christ. It puts us in position where we allow Him to be God. And then if He wants to change something, then He can do that. If He wants to use us in that change, then He can do that. Jesus is not saying to them, just have a little prayer meeting over there and the demon will be cast out. Jesus is pointing them to a deeper truth, and it is the one, it is the only one, I believe, that will be effective for us as a church and us as a denomination and us as gathered Christians, regardless of the denomination, if we call on Jesus Christ as Lord, it is the way that we will reach into this hurting generation and we will find the power of God released in such a way that we see people not running away from Christ but coming to him and into the churches. That's the paradigm shift. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 35 to get a little bit of help in what we find here. Well, actually, I'm about out of time. Let me just do this. You go to one, Mark 1, 35. You also go to Mark 6, verses 45 and 46. And we will find that the, the way that Jesus handled his everyday life was he would move off where he could pray, just him and God. He's not arguing for prayer meetings. He's arguing for a lifestyle of prayer. And that lifestyle of communion with God that lifestyle of, of being connected with him ourselves positions us for him to use us in situations and his power flows into that situation. It's not about us at the end of the day. That's the paradigm shift. It's not a ritual of prayer that he's pushing here. It is a lifestyle of communion with God through prayer. And it is a powerful thing to watch. So as we pull this to a close, a couple of things. First of all, hurting people need us to pray. Hurting people need Christians to pray. 
We need to have that communion with God that puts us in lockstep with him so that if he wants something done, he can tell us and we'll do it and not wait for a prayer meeting for that to happen. I like what Henri Nouwen had to say. He said, one cannot get ready for the moment by quickly uttering a special prayer. One has to be ready through a prayerful life when the moment comes. What a great statement. It is that ongoing, continuing relationship with Jesus Christ that empowers us is a lifestyle of prayer in the truest New Testament sense of the word. But when we wander from our power source, from Jesus, when we wander away and we become powerless and we set up a credibility problem, not just for ourselves, but for Jesus himself. If people say, you're a follower of Jesus, why doesn't this work? You're a follower of Jesus, why is your life a wreck? That's a credibility problem for Jesus because the claims that he makes, which are true, are pushed on us and people see us. And some people say, I don't believe I want any of that. Thank you very much. So what do you do with all of that? I suggest that we use this as an opportunity to recognize that people are drawn to life. They're not drawn to religious systems. They're, not drawn, they're drawn to life. And when we walk with Jesus Christ, when we are disciples of Jesus who are growing in that relationship, we will find that his power works through us and crosses, well, let me say it this way, it builds bridges between us and other people and allows us then to connect them with the love and the life of Jesus Christ. That's a personal story for us. So as we'll find as we work our way through this series... My encouragement to you is tell that story. Tell that personal story of who Jesus Christ is for you day in and day out. Don't sell a system. Tell a story. God bless you. We'll see you more next week.